fourth chapter of the book of James. There is a worksheet if you need one at the back. About 15 years ago, a man by the name of Eric Beyer wrote a book entitled Games People Play, made the bestseller list. And it has to do with these psychological motivations that you and I use to manipulate people and get them to do what we want them, want them to do. Games people play. A few years after uh, Beyer wrote that book, um, uh, another man wrote a spinoff of that book entitled Games Christians Play. It has to do with these little games that we use that conceal the real motive. Um, for example, there is one that we use where you use power words, you know, like they, do you love it? Here, here's, here's an example of this game Christians play. I wonder why they don't do something about him. <laughs> or I wonder when they're going to, they are going to do something about those kids that run up and down the halls of the church, write notes. It's always they. I love this one. This, this actually has happened to me often. They think, Pastor, they think you need to cut a few minutes off your sermons. <laughs> now, who they are, I, I, I don't know, but this one person is a committee of, of, of one that has been appointed by they to remind me that I preach too long. They think you preach too long. A little game that we play. Um, and then, then there's a game that only us old veteran Christians can play. You know, it's like where you say, well, <clears throat> when you've been a Christian as long as I have. You know, that kind of thing. And then, then there's one where, where you say, um, uh, you mean you haven't heard about the Chaldean taunt in, verse, in chapter 3? I thought everybody knew that. Or, I like this one. I, li I use this one a lot. Well, that may be what it sounds like, but the Greek, you know, <laughs> the Hebrew is this. I know a little Greek and a little Hebrew. The little Greek runs a, a restaurant and the little Hebrew runs a clothing store. And, and one, of the, one, of the, one, of the, one game that is really, really effective is where you say, well, you know, that'll be great. We'll, I'd love to do it, but we've never done it that way before. You know, we're just not used to doing it that way. And when Brother Smellfungus was our pastor, <laughs> he sure didn't do it that way, and he had great success. And a game that is most common in the book of James is the game of, called Playing God. A common game in the book of James. The game called Playing God. And in this text that I'm going to read as we go through, there, through here, he exposes the dangerous but common practice of playing God in the lives of others and in our own lives. And in the first part of this passage, he talks about playing God with others where we criticize and judge others. And in the second part, he 
talks about this game playing God um, with our, in ourselves, with ourselves, as we presume and we boast. And so I want to introduce you tonight to the game called Playing God with Others, verses 11 and 12. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor. Now every game has an objective. The game Monopoly has an objective, that is you get all the big expensive hotels and put everybody else out of business into bankruptcy. That's why it's called Monopoly. The game of basketball is to put that little round ball through the hoop more times than your opponent before the final buzzer rings. Every game has an objective. And the objective of playing God with others is this. You imagine yourself superior to others. You imagine yourself superior to other Christians and you put them down in various ways. Now the rules of the game, every game has an objective or, and, and it also has a strategy or rules. And there are really two rules to this game. The first is that you, what he calls, speak against your brother. Now, the Greek word is to talk down so that your goal is to lower your listener's estimate of the other person. That's the rule. And here you are up here and you're talking down your brother in order to lower your listener's estimate of him. Jess Moody says that this is a method that is conceived by the untalented to cause them to feel equal to the multi-talented. Now why is this game of censorious criticism one of the most popular games in the modern church? I really don't know, but I think there's probably three reasons why. One is because when we criticize others, it tends to it tends to minister to our own complacency. We feel a little better about ourselves if we are talking down someone else. And the second reason why we tend to criticize others, and it's a game that we delight to play and are masters in playing it, is that sometimes it it is the outcome of our own incapacity to produce, and it kind of hides or masks our own feelings of inferiority and, and inadequacy. And so while I can talk about somebody else and talk him down, it kind of hides my feelings of inferiority and my inability to produce. I was interested to read the sports page today, Nolan Ryan's comment about Bob Fella's criticism of him. Bob Fella criticized Nolan Ryan, called him just a strikeout pitcher, and, and Nolan Ryan, well, he is that, when Nolan Ryan kind of responded quietly by saying, usually when somebody else criticizes another, it's because he feels inferior or inadequate himself. 
And sometimes we have this tendency to criticize or to talk down others because it hides our own repressed desires. Usually the thing we criticize in others are the things we all have, we, we ourselves have problems with. And so I condemn and I criticize in you the same temptations, the same weaknesses, and the same faults I have. We're masters of the game. And the second rule in this game, playing God with others, is to begin to judge others. And the word means to pronounce condemnation upon someone. And he isn't suggesting that we become, you know, um, gullible or non-discerning. But before you can judge someone, listen to me, before you can judge someone, you're qualified to judge somebody. You've got to know everything there is to know about him and, 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 and what you're judging in him. And God is the only one who's qualified for that. So that what James is saying is this, that when you judge somebody, you're, taking, you're playing God's role. And who is there who would dare play God's part? And James says that when you judge someone else, you speak against, you're talking against the law. And the law he's talking about is this royal law of love that's found in chapter 2, verse 8. We should be building one another up in love, not tearing one another down in criticism. God's antidote to a censorious criticism is Christian love. And so he comes to the end of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians in this letter that deals with this party spirit and this petty complaining and criticizing and judging and condemning that's going on in this carnal church. And he says there is a more excellent way and this excellent way is Christian love. And he's talking about sustained goodwill and the acceptance of others and this persistent searching for the good in someone else. Sid Gilliam was a famous football coach and his team was ripped apart with dissension and complaining and, and, uh, and jealousy. And one day he got all the players together and this is what he said, I'm not going to allow a negative spirit on this team. We love one another. We build one another up. We encourage one another in the game of football. I'm not going to allow a negative spirit on this team. We are to love one another, and we are to build one another up, and we are to encourage one another in the Christian faith. That's why we're here. Now this is the evaluation. There is only one person who is qualified to judge. And there is nothing more contagious and more injurious than a negative, petty spirit. The terrible truth of slander is, unless you know all the facts, keep quiet. Now there's a playing God with others. It's found in verses 13 through 17. Listen to it as I read it. Come now you who... Playing God with ourselves, however, rather, I should say. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now the objective of this game. The objective of this game is to imagine yourself as the final authority of your life and live like it. It's to feel like that you are the master of your fate, that you're in control of your life, that you're calling the shots because you're the captain of your soul. And there is no sin that is more offensive to God than that. It is theoretical, practical atheism. And it's played by people who would never claim to be an atheist. You ask these people who play this game, do you believe in God? They'd be insulted that you would even ask them. Of course I believe in God. I worship God. I sit in the pew every Sunday. But when it comes to the everyday practice of their lives, they don't live like it. When it comes to the everyday practice of their lives, they live as though there, are, there is no God. They make their own decisions. They make their own plans as if God made no difference. Now here are the rules of the game. <clears throat> you, too, you choose your time schedule. Does this sound like anybody you know? You choose your time schedule today and tomorrow. I get up in the morning, I'm thinking, now I've got to do this today. I've got this planned. I've got this event arranged. Without any concept or idea that God has allowed you time to live and you're a steward of that time and that one day you'll be accountable for every moment that you've been allowed to live. The rule of the game is, this is my time, I'm going to spend it like I want to spend it. The second rule in the game is to select your own location, the location that pleases you. And these merchants of whom James wrote presumed upon events. They proposed to go into certain cities and buy and sell. They were bold in saying where they were going, what they were going to do, as though... God's plan for them did not exist. Now, if you're a child of God, you have no right to decide what you're going to do with your life. You're making plans of what you're going to do with your life. You have no right to decide what you're going to do with your life. That's God's business. You say, tomorrow I'm going to trans." Pire, this business, I'm going to this place, I'm going to live here. You, have, you don't even have the right to choose where you're going to live. That's God's business. And the third rule in the game is to arrange your activities so they will work out for your pleasure. If it brings you pleasure, then do it. If it's what I want, if it's what pleases me, then after all, I've got to look out for number one. And the fourth rule in the game is to predict your profit and boast in it. Jesus knew such a man. He said, well, I've got so much, so many crops, so many, so much crop, uh, 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 material things, fruit. I'll just tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. 
Now here's the evaluation in verses 14 and 15. I want you to hang in, I want to show you. Here's the kicker. You have no knowledge of tomorrow. You have no knowledge of tomorrow. You do not know what life will be like tomorrow. There's no greater tragedy than to plan as if the future belonged to us. The gravest mistake that we can make is to act like we have control over the future, as if we know exactly what is going to happen tomorrow. That's why so many people are so disheartened and distracted. They've projected to build their lives and plan their dreams apart from God, and the best laid plans are are in shambles. And they've built their little kingdoms, and somebody's kicked those props out from under them, and life has come tumbling down. Hitler boasted that the Third Reich would stand a thousand years. It lasted 20 He came into my office one day, just the shell of a man. I hardly recognized him. He sat down to visit with me. He told me he had such great plans for his life. He planned and dreamed, had everything lined up just like he wanted it. And his wife had walked out on him. He said she couldn't stand my selfishness and my neglect and my insensitivity. His business had failed. He was head over heels in debt. He couldn't pay his bills. He said, years ago I had the world by the tail and I talked so much about what I was going to do in life. I had these glorious and wonderful plans and none of them turned out like I planned. What a difference it makes when the events of tomorrow placed in God's hands. You don't know what tomorrow's like. And the second thing is you have no assurance of a long life. You're just a vapor, James says, that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. J.B. Phillips translates this, What after all is your life? It's like a puff of smoke visible for a little while and then dissolving into thin air. Picked up the newspaper Saturday morning, read the headlines. Art, Bart Giamatti's dead, seven, 51 years old. I read the account of that. A young man that was the um, medic, the, did the CPR on him, said we worked on him for, for almost an hour because we knew that he was just 51 years old. We found out his age and we tried to, tried to uh, return his life to him because, after all, he was just such a young man. I was reading a book the other day about a young lady who was in the hospital for a little while. She walked across the ro- hallway to visit a, another girl in this uh, hospital ward, shared with her the gospel. She was taken downstairs to be fitted for a cast on her leg and stayed down there about four hours or five. When she came back up, she passed by this room and looked in, the bed was empty. Went into her room, was told later that the girl across the hall had just died. He raced boats. His name was Donald Campbell. He made a, he made a commitment that he would 
race his jet hydroplane to 300 miles an hour and set the world record, and then he would quit racing. He, he promised this to his wife. He got his hydroplane 310 miles an hour, and it disintegrated. And all the, modern, all the newspapers ran the pictures of this hydroplane showing Donald Campbell and this, this boat, jet boat disintegrating in a puff of smoke. Job says that our years are swifter than a runner's race. And what he means is that years don't plod on like they seem. They're like a caravan moving at, at double time. You have no assurance of a long life. And it's foolish to play games with your life when you have no assurance of a long life. Third, you have no right to ignore God's will. You have no right to ignore God's will. The sheriff died. He was a good man. He wasn't, really wasn't a bad man. He just didn't have time for God. And he said, look, I don't have time for God and do all of this that I have to do. And he went to hell because he refused the will of God. And the banker died. Nothing wrong with him, except that he was just too busy with God, too busy for God. And when someone came to share with him the gospel, he said, When I get a little more time, when I get caught up, I'll sit down and listen to you. I have no time for God right now. You have no right to ignore God's will. Now the whole summation of it, when you decide, verse 17. You must know the right thing to do. You must know the right thing to do. To him who knows to do good. What he's saying is this, that whatever the cost, evaluate your life according to God's Word. The way to live this life is on the basis of God's Word. So you evaluate your life according to God's Word. And secondly, you must start doing the right thing. If you're a negative, petty person, stop doing it. If you're still doing that, you're in sin. If you're living your life as you please, calling your own shots as though you will live forever, then you're living in sin. Stop doing that. Stop playing God with others. Stop playing God with your life. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'll make us aware tonight of the responsibility that each of us has to live his life according to the plan and the will of God. And that no one has a moment, no one has a dream, no one has a plan except the dream and the moment and the plan that God gives. And that all other dreams, all other plans, all other devices, all other ways are doomed to failure, to heartache. And I pray tonight that you'll make us aware of the importance finding your will for our lives.
living in that will. For I pray in Jesus' name for His sake. There will be three invitations tonight. An invitation for you to receive Christ as your personal Savior. Perhaps to place your life in the fellowship of the church or maybe to rededicate yourself to Christ, to live a more effective life for the Lord's sake. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.